Welcome to CS Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 177 of CS Radio. I'm Jay Michael DeAngelis. I'm Natty Leach. Natty. Michael. Uh, I feel like I have not seen you since we last recorded the show. It's not quite true because we had the career fair last Friday. Yeah, but that's a whirlwind. That's a whirlwind. And then we went our separate ways for quite a few quite a few days. Yeah, well, it's because one of the well, you had a, a big event that you attended on Friday night, I believe, Friday afternoon. That is correct. I had to leave the career for a little early, take the train out to Doylestown, um, because I was attending a book launch event um, by the author Joella Nadi, and she's in the studio with us today. <laughs> oh, Hello, Joella. Right here, it's me. It is amazing. So, full disclosure, uh, Joella and I went to college together, and we were housemates for two years. It's true. Go Mules. Go Mules. <laughs> Proud alums of Muhlenberg College. Um, Wait, are they the Muhlenberg Mules? They yeah. are. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't I, know that. I feel like they didn't think too hard on that. They were just like, what well, sounds like Muhlenberg? <laughs> yeah, uh, when I was a senior in high school, my uh, American government teacher was very invested in where everyone was you know, going to college. And so he, you know, he wanted you to tell him you know, when you made your decision. So I'd say, I'm going to Muhlenberg. And he went, are they the Mules? And I went... Oh, I don't know. I didn't really look into that, not being a huge sports fan. Yeah. I'll let you know. I came back the next time. I'm like, yeah, it turns out they are the mules. And he went, yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Mar- Marty the mule. Yeah. And I I don't know that if, if Marty had a name when we were there, I was mm. unaware of it. So I don't know if it's a new iteration. The only sports game I ever went to was one one of our friends was singing the national anthem. And we left as soon as he was done. And then we left as soon as he finished singing. We kept calling it Brian's show. We were annoying all the football fans. Um, Yeah, we were not. Muhlenberg Sports, when we were there, was perhaps not. It was not its biggest selling point. Also, we were theater kids. That's also true. Yeah. Um, I didn't even have a football team at NYU, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. I, I guess I never really thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, where could you play football in the city? The Meadowlands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Going over true. to Jersey. Right by the Clifton Commons 16, yeah. <laughs> where I, Joel and I both worked in the Clifton Commons Shopping Center. It's true. Barnes & Noble was my first job right and out I of was, college. Oh. And I was at the Clifton Commons 16 movie theater. The movie theater. Yeah. So Joan's lives, our lives have been intertwined for some time, so it feels very fitting that she's on the show today. But just from that little glimpse, you can also hear that, like me, Joan's had um, a very uh, winding career path. Um and has arrived at uh, being uh, an author. This is your second book that's coming out. Um, before we um, hear a little bit about your story, why don't you tell us a little bit about, about the book that's coming out? Okay, my book is called In It Together, Navigating Depression with Partners, Family, and Friends. And it's really designed to help people show up for the people they love and to help people who need those people to show up to receive support. Because I feel like... Where we go wrong a lot is people want to support others and people need support, but we don't know how to do it. And then we end up annoying each other. Yeah, I think it's a really uh, great book. I think it's a great uh, toolkit, really, for for people uh, who want to uh, help their friends and family and loved ones and uh, a great toolkit for those who are in need of help and don't know how to to sort of ask for it my favorite part is the last chapter is really just i called it the cheat sheet because it's just there so you can flip right to that you've bought the book and you you don't you haven't had time to read the whole thing yet you can open to chapter 10 and do some of the bits in there and 
be on your way. Is it that chapter? I also saw the the selected media recommendations. Oh, yeah. I really liked. Yeah, and it's what's wild about that is I've seen so many other things that I would now recommend since then, but. It was a very good snapshot of what I had seen by 2021. And so these are all things recommended viewing and 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 listening. Yeah, because there's so much bad mental health portrayal in the media, and so this was, um, it was primarily television shows that I felt like nailed it. Um, is nailed it one of them? <laughs> nailed it is not one of them, but um, a lot of Netflix animation is on mm-hmm. there. Big Mouth and BoJack Horseman, I know, are on the list, mm-hmm. and. Um, and it's not even just depression, but it's um, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is on the list. Great it's just show. Yeah. And there are shows that like not just had mental illness like as a subject matter, but actually explored it and didn't do that thing where somebody was you know mentally ill for one episode and then they got help at the end and we never talked about it again. Yeah. It became like a part of their journey. And I like that. That's why my pitch to you is to give Steven Universe another chance. I know. I we so we talked about this recently. <laughs> I struggle with animation that is actually made for children. I don't know why. Um, people keep telling me I'd love Adventure Time, and I can't yeah. get into it. It's by the same it, same one of the same people is the mm. overlap between those two shows. Yeah, if you make animation that's aimed at adults, I will watch all of yeah. it repeatedly. But I get tripped up when it's aimed at children. Natty says it's worth the ride. It really tackles the issues that you were just talking about. I think in such a, in a important and in real way that I didn't expect for a show that whose audience is really for kids. I feel like the topics that they cover, I was just so impressed with. Um, like at some point, I, I didn't even notice, but I, I watched an episode. And I was like, wait, did they just tackle this? Thing? Like mm-hmm. how did how did they do that in such like a a real way in in a ten minute episode in those short episodes they they cover those topics so so powerfully. So uh, as we were saying at the start of the show, you and I were both theater majors. That's true. So take us on this journey of um, theater kid to best selling author. Okay, so the first thing you need to know is I got out of college and we did summer stock that summer. Mm -hmm. And then I moved home to New Jersey and I started my first grown up real world theater job on September 6th, 2001. So right there, the, the world kind of exploded right after I got there. And I was living in New York and I was working for free constantly because it hadn't occurred to any of us to fight back on that yet. Yep. And I, I just got super burned out, and my most successful show ran in a festival, and I had offers to take it other places and um, all this great stuff, and then I got threatened with a lawsuit, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, this urge I've been having to leave theater is right. And so I got out and taught yoga for a couple of years, because that's what basic girls did in the mid-2000s, and eventually... Uh, about 10 years ago, I had like a career crisis and I kind of felt like I wanted to write. And for no apparent reason, I thought I wanted to write historical fiction. And I think that held me back for a little bit because I couldn't kind of find what I was doing. And one day I was out to dinner with a friend of ours from college and she was talking about this guy she was dating and the problems she was having and her relationships and all this stuff. And I said to her, Jenny, I would love to talk about this stuff all the time, but I can't because I have to go figure out what I want to do for a living. And the next morning, in the middle of teaching a client, I went, oh, oh, that's what I want to <laughs> do for a living. And I was coming out of a divorce, and I thought, there's so much I want to learn and know. And if I don't know it, other people don't know it, too. So 
I'm going to start a blog. And that is where my blog, The Redhead Bedhead, started. And I looked at dating and I looked at sex and I looked at uh, eventually side effects of medication and all sorts of different stuff. There's even a series of uh, what I called doing it songs. It was a, a comedic series about songs about sex. Uh, and I kind of looked around to see what it was I wanted to talk about. And I, I landed at a couple of topics. And um, then the unexpected happened, which was depression, which had swallowed a big chunk of my 20s, came back. And I didn't think that was allowed. I was like, no, I have this cool career now. I, um, depression's not a thing. And when it came back, I wrote about it. And that was when I found out that people who weren't my mom were reading because I got all of these messages about people and how depression had affected their relationships and their sex lives. And that really kind of turned the corner on what my career was going to be. And now I talk about depression a lot. Yeah. I mean, for a long time, it was a hidden thing that people just didn't talk about. It didn't come up in conversation. It was, um, I don't know, ta taboo in ways, um, for sure. And so I can see how that could resonate with people hearing someone else's experience with that. And what I always said about that first piece, when I got all the messages, I didn't get, like, people didn't tweet at me. People didn't comment on public posts. Mm -hmm. People DM'd me. People emailed me. It was all very, like, I want to say this, but not in front of anybody because people just weren't comfortable. So you're writing a blog. You become a little bit of an internet personality. It's true. Um, how did uh, your first book come about? I know that's an interesting story as well. So did you have, I guess my first question is, so you're on this career path. You're blogging. You're, you're building a social media presence. Uh, you're appearing at conferences. Was a book in your mind? Were you still thinking, oh, I'd like to like really become a writer and, and write a book? So somebody had said to me when I first you know, started my blog, well, eventually this will all be a book, right? And I was like, I don't know about that. And so while I was on that trying to figure out what was going to be what, I talked to, I had like a career advising session with, <gasps> uh, mm -hmm, with a woman named Tristan Terramino, uh, who's very big in that industry. And she said to me, I think this depression thing, this depression thing is you should run with that. And I was not sure because... If you've been listening to this story, you know that I am not a doctor or a therapist. I am a sex writer with a theater degree. But then I, constantly looking for advice, turned to another career advising session with another educator. And they said, what if you did a survey? What if you got information? What if you asked people to talk about their experiences? So it's not just you talking about your experience. It's you've got like numbers to give people. And that, that kind of started to grow in my head. I thought, okay, if I do that, that could be really cool. And then I realized I didn't know how to do that, like, ethically. Like, mm. if you're researching in academia, there's, like, structure in yeah, place. Yeah, we have the IRRB. Mm. Yeah. And I didn't want to... I didn't want to do things wrong. I didn't want to do anything that would be damaging to people. So I reached out to a, a psychotherapist named Stephen Biggs, who I knew from conferences and stuff, and said, you know, I know you don't know me, but will you help me write this book? And he said, hell yeah. And he jumped on and supervised all of my research that led to my first book. And a great example of how you can use your network and reach out to people in, in some ways like a cold call of just kind of saying like, we have this shared interest. Can mm -hmm. we work together on this? I always joke that I didn't have the credentials, so I borrowed his for a little bit. 
talk about since we um, here in career services, you know, it's not in well, it's infrequent, but it happens every year that a small number of students come in and say, I'd like to be a writer. Mm -hmm. How do I get published? How do I get an agent? How do I this, that, and the other thing? And those things are less tangible than if you want to go into banking or consulting or technology where there's sort of a recruiting path. So what advice do you have to our student listeners um, or our general, our audience in general about, I really want to become a writer. What are the options open to me? What are, what are the different paths I could pursue? What's your, what's your thoughts? So like the bad news is that there's not like that structure, right? But the good news is that means there's all different ways you can approach this, especially now. Um, so many people self-publish now. Um, some people, we have a friend who published with what's called a hybrid publisher, which basically he went to them and he sort of self-published but had all the support you would get from an actual publisher. Um, but you also still have your traditional publishers. And in addition to the big ones we all know, there's small presses that focus on topics. So it's a good idea if you know what it is you want to be talking about, to kind of look around and see who publishes the books you like and the books that talk about the things that speak to you. Um, when it comes to things like getting an agent, I will tell you, when you say, I'm writing a book about sex and depression, people say, that's so great and so important and not right for me at this time. So I moved ahead without an agent. And uh, frankly, it's worked out fine for me so far. But I, I just want you to know, people sometimes feel like that's like the kiss of death. I can't get an agent. And it absolutely is not. You can still move forward and get your books out into the world without that. And your books are published through a publisher. Yes. 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 Um, it is a, a traditional publisher uh, called Thorn Apple Press. And they started out writing books about non-monogamy and... Then they started kind of expanding, and now they, they, they have books covering everything from, like, race issues to um, they, they wrote the first guidebook to pegging. Yeah, I have the blurb on the back cover of that book. But um, And they, they published my books. Well, that's, that's where you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> but um, And my publisher jokes that, she's like, are you an um, overly sensitive overthinker? Come write for us, because that's what we do. But again, like there's a place for anybody and did you approach them yourself as someone who didn't have an agent at the time is that how you kind of got that to move forward so the story is actually fun I was at a conference and um at, at this point people were tweeting a lot during the conferences mm -hmm. and we mm -hmm. had a, we had so a hashtag, live tweet hashtag whatever yeah yeah, yeah yeah and this was hashtag uh I think it was hashtag SFS monster because we were at the I don't remember the name of the conference now but we're at the conference and people are tweeting and it's the same day as the Olympic opening ceremonies and we trended on the list with the Rio mm, opening ceremonies. Uh. It was very exciting. I stepped off the stage and I had a message from the woman who's now my publisher saying, we want your book. And because I'm so like together and like really have my head on my shoulders, I, I said yes and I went right ahead with that book. None of that is true. <laughs> what I did instead was I panicked utterly. And I ignored that message. And then two years later, when I got approached by an academic press and knew that wasn't the right place for my book, I backtracked and said, hey, remember when we had this conversation that I totally was part of in 2016? And that's how they published my book. So it's um, 
again, I, see, it's a great example of how you can royally screw things up, <laughs> and it'll still you be still okay. You still recover if you're, if you're still humble and show why you're interested in them and make that connection again, you can still have that door open. I mean, I talk to students all the time who feel like the doors are closing yeah. around them mm-hmm. as they're it's making the number decisions. one thing we hear, yeah. But there's so much more flexibility than that um, in so many ways. And sometimes it could be as simple as just reconnecting with someone who you spoke to before. Um, it, does that influence the the title of the book, the conference that you're at about with Monster? Uh, no, Monster was always the title I was using. Um, I was terrified they were going to make me change it, but my sessions were always called The Monster Under the Bed. Um, so the first one was something like The Monster Under the Bed starting the conversation about sex and depression. And the next year it was like Monster Under the Bed facing, it, it, okay. like, it just grew from that. Um, yeah, but The Monster Under the Bed was a title I had before I had a book which I thought was funny. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And showcases how you can kind of continue on from something that started elsewhere. It didn't start in the realm of a book, but it kind of grew into that. And I was terrified they were going to make me change that title. And they didn't. They loved it. But the next book, I had a similarly novella-length title uh, all set to go. And they did change that. And it came out so much better. So I feel like that's another thing when I work with young writers. They're like, they edited my thing. They changed my thing. That means they hate it. It means whatever. But you have to remember whenever you work with any kind of editor, whether it's a website, a newspaper, a book, they want to package you the best they can to get you the best, like the right attention. So it's not about getting all the readers, it's about getting the right ones. And sometimes it's going to be changing your title. I want to backtrack just a, a little bit to something you said um, can you talk a little bit about academic publishers, why that wasn't right for you? <laughs> so um, the exact sentence I said was they're going to they're going to print um, a weirdly shaped book with a cover of like that's like a circle and a square and they're going to charge people thirty eight dollars for it. And that didn't I, I didn't like that idea. And uh, <coughs> I felt like it wasn't going in the right direction to make the book accessible to as many people as possible. That publisher went on to publish a lot of like great stuff in my from people in my industry who um, were writing about like uh, relationships and ADHD and but it just did not feel like the right thing for my book. My my work in general is very conversational. I'm not I don't know. I don't think my book would have felt the fit well into academia. Okay. Yeah. Although, if you're a professor and you're listening, feel free to teach my books in your classes. (laughs) Well, I think it's always useful to have different perspectives. Like, if everything were from the academic lens, there would be a huge part of the population that that wouldn't resonate with. People don't always like reading the academic side, so adding a real human element. Even in a classroom, right? If everything's just from a textbook, you're missing, then you've, you know, got a very narrow view of things. Absolutely. So my first book came out in March of 2020, so we all remember what that was. A month before that, I went to a friend's reading, and life was like normal, and we were eating together afterwards. And she said, so what are you going to write now? And I told her definitively what my next book absolutely 100% was going to be, and it is nothing like the book I ended up writing. Interesting. Yeah, it was going to be a book uh, uh, where I interviewed people whose careers were disrupted by uh, sexual harassment. Totally different than what I ended up writing. Totally different. Yeah. But that's still an interesting book. Yeah. Yeah. So I have another question. So yeah. w- when you were um, 
thinking of yourself as a theater kid. We talk, we talk about transferable skills mm-hmm. all the time on the mm-hmm. podcast. Um, so I'm curious that as you transitioned through what you were talking about earlier um, today, what, what kind of stays true to you as that theater background that still helps you in the way you present your writing or you present yourself um, in your work? This is a great question because it's something I didn't figure out until I was almost 20 years out of school. Um, and par- I think part of it was depression and how my brain works. But I felt really stuck when I was living in New York because I thought, well, I can't apply for that job. I was a theater major. I, you know, I don't have the qualifications, whatever. Um, and I've kind of gone on to realize that I actually have this whole skill set that came out of working in theater that, you know, I'm really good at presenting. I'm good mm-hmm. at getting up and talking to people. Um, I was actually a directing major in college, so I'm very good at setting up your presentation. This is the order it should go in. These are the feelings it will evoke, all that jazz. And so I think it's really important for people to not do what I did when I was young and think using my theater skills looks like this one thing. I have to turn myself into something completely different if I'm going to move ahead. Like I was a terrible yoga teacher because I thought I had to try to be like the best yogaist teacher in the world. But if I had been Joellen who knew how to direct shows and was amusing and stuff, I think it would have been far more successful. Yeah, that's so fascinating because it seems like a natural place to use those directorial skills in a different setting. It, it really was, and I really kind of blew it. Uh, the one thing I did bring over, I always joke that I was uh, like I was one of those theater kids who got to college and realized they weren't actually talented because, you know, I did all the musicals in my very small high school and whatever. Mm-hmm. And that left me with this tendency, and it carried into my, my yoga teaching, and then clearly it is what I do now. Um, I always aimed at the people who felt out of place, the people who felt like they weren't good at what we were doing, the people who were struggling, the people who were new. I always feel like the people who already feel like solid and cool at whatever's going on, they don't need me. They, it's going fine for them. So I want to talk to like the person who's in the corner feeling left out and scared and whatever. And I think that skill set comes from having been that kid who was like, okay, I'm not going to be in any of these shows. I guess I'll be a stage manager so I can still work on them. Yeah. I'm sure part of it too is that you have a strength of, of empathy or connecting with others in that way and identifying what what people need and, and what is needed um, in that situation. Um, Michael and I were talking about a few weeks ago the idea of strengths yeah. um, and Clifton strengths. And it kind of speaks to what, how you're just describing that, the idea of finding ways in which you can capitalize on the things you're strong at as opposed to trying to jam in something that you're not, you don't have a particular tendency for, um, but just try to make it work. But instead, reframing it and thinking about how can I make this work for me the way that I know how to do it best. I um, came to this huge realization just in this last year uh, that I spent a lifetime being told I was too sensitive, too many feelings, too much, like dial that back. And I spent so much time trying to do that. And I started turning into this person I really didn't like, this really cynical, really mean person who was never happy. And uh, during a random conversation where somebody talked about how they shouldn't have to care about other people's feelings or something, it clicked for me. That I was like, why am I like turning myself inside out to try and make it easier for other people to be inconsiderate of each other? My skill, my my like the thing, the power I have is that 
I know how to talk to people in ways that make them feel seen and heard and whatever. And what if I instead taught people a little bit of that? And so that's now my job. Yeah, that's how, that's how you connect with people. That's how you build those relationships. I mean, there's so many ways in which being sensitive helps you build those bridges between the others, whoever it might be in your life, your friends, your partners, um, your coworkers, that can be so useful compared to just feeling like you need to turn that off or feeling like it's a weakness, yeah. but instead really showcasing the strength and the positive element of that, I think is really, really important and speaks well also to a lot of the things that we talk about in how to reframe um, who you are in such a positive light that if you're talking to an employer, you're thinking about your next job or your next career move, think about those things that maybe you perceive as a weakness or you've heard are a weakness, but translating that as a positive, what comes out of that that's strong for you and how can you capitalize that on whatever your next move is career-wise? There's a lot of qualities that we don't think of as coexisting with success, right? Like um, introversion, not not like going out with the whole office, whatever. And it's taken me far too long, so I want you all now while you're younger to learn this, that success doesn't look like one thing. Just because the loudest version of success looks mm -hmm. a certain way, that doesn't mean that your qualities that make you very different than that preclude success for you. Uh, that's amazing advice. The other thing I wanted to, to to go back and point out is, as someone who's you know gone from different career to different career to different career, uh, you know even you mentioned you know that yoga was not the best fit for you ultimately, mm -hmm. but you learned something, right? You learned something about yourself and about the way you work and the way you need to be. Um, so it was not necessarily a wasted. Time. No, I actually, and it sounds very Pollyanna, but I don't think any of it was wasted. I yeah. think all of it, oh, it's so cliched, all of it br brought me to who I am now. Um, and the, the time teaching yoga and, and fitness classes and all that stuff taught me who I wanted to show up in the world for. And it was the people who were scared and felt like they weren't doing good and whatever. And that hugely informed my career because my, my blog was not... I'm cool and sexy, listen to all my cool, sexy adventures. They were literally like, hey, is anyone else confused by this thing? Let's talk about that. And so, yeah, that doing that thing that I felt really bad at taught me what I was really good at. I think that's such an important lesson for our audience to, to hear. Yeah, and when I talk to students all the time, I feel like there's this ticking clock that's counting yeah. down to when they graduate and they need to have everything together yeah. so they can and embark and, on life. And this feeling that there's a right answer and a wrong answer yes. and you know if i decide if i have to decide between two things one of them is right and one of them is wrong but ultimately they're probably both really good opportunities and and they're both going to shake out in different ways yes. and that's okay and, and in this job all the time our common way people phrase questions to us is well should i do this is this the right thing to do and the answer is it could be <laughs> the other thing you were talking about. That could also be the right way to do it. It doesn't mean that there's just one right answer. I was even talking to my friend the other day who's thinking about what he's going to do next. And he's like, well, I really think that the right thing is to do this. And I was like, well, why, why can't the other thing be the right? Like, why is that the right? I think there's no real judgment there. Any of those could be the right path forward. Just thinking through how that fits in to either your goals or just what you're going to learn next. And maybe that what thing you learn is that I hate this. And sometimes that's just as useful as learning what you love. Well, Joe, we always uh, wrap up when we have a guest with two, two, uh, two questions. 
uh, wrap up here. One, and you may you may already be living it. Uh, what is your dream job? So it's the job I do now, but with way more people buying my books. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest about it. I had a talk with a therapist recently where she was like, but what about doing good for the world? And it took me a long time to get here. But I think I, I feel confident in my book's abilities to do good for the world. So now let's, uh, let, let's pay me for that. Yeah. Second question. Mm-hmm. If you could have your own podcast, what would you want it to be about? So I'm going to take this idea that you said to me about a year ago because it's stayed with me ever since. Always with the, the fresh pod ideas. Uh, out not of my a pod account. machine. You suggested a podcast called Binge Watching Benson. And, um, <laughs> and it made me think that what I would love to do is a podcast that explored um, like 80s uh there used to be, and it doesn't really exist anymore, something called first-run syndication. Mm-hmm. Ah. And this gave us um, wonderful-slash-terrible shows like Small Wonder and Out of This World. And I would I would do a podcast where each episode examined a different show like that. Michael was beaming, by the way, of how proud he was. Of the, had you forgotten about that entirely? I had. <laughs> he was very proud of himself. Yeah, binge-watching Benson like, has never left my I, brain. I want to watch. I want, I want to listen to both. I want to, I want to listen to... Binge watching Benson, and I want to listen to your first run syndication show. Yeah, there was one. It was about what if Snow White and Prince Charming yes. were living in the modern world. When I tell you I could sing <clears throat> the theme song to that show right now, um, I, I'm not kidding. And I think it was called like the Ever After. I think, or, I think you're yeah. right. I mean, later dramatized as Once Upon a Time. Mm-hmm. But this was like a hokey, terrible syndicated sitcom. It was sitcom. really bad. Yeah. Laugh track. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Do any mon like I feel like you- oh I guess like Big Bang Theory and stuff like that have so, laugh tracks. So uh, if you uh, look up any interview with uh, Chuck Lorre, sort of the king oh, yeah. of the last standing king of the sitcom, right? Mm-hmm. He reinvented the laugh track. So what he calls uh, what they used to- they used to have literally a guy with a box that just played. <laughs> It's true. It was like it was essentially like a soundboard. Chortle laugh. Yes, yeah. big laugh, yeah. small laugh, right? And they would play that. Belly laugh. They would play that at every joke. And then if the audience happened to laugh too, great. But if not, didn't matter. They were, they were pumping the sound in. Now they record all the audience laughter live and remix it. So they're like, okay, on that take, that line got a really big laugh but we really want the big laugh to hit on this line. So they manipulate it. Oh. Um, so he calls sneaky, it, he sneaky. calls it sweetening because it's, it's the actual audience reaction, but sweetened. I Is it like Goldberg's has a laugh track, right? Or does it? I don't remember. I don't remember. I want to see That's... a laugh track show with the laugh track pulled. <clears throat> like, is it still funny if they're not there signaling to us? Laugh? Well, a great. I mean, uh, there's a couple examples of that. Mash started with a laugh track. Uh, did it really? And they fought and fought, and they were like, "This show does not need a laugh no. track." Um, and more. I mean, it's still like 20 years ago, but Sports Night, the first season, had a laugh track, and they fought and fought and said, "It's weird. It, yeah. There's clearly not an audience. It's shot on film." Uh, could we not have a laugh track? But there was just this thinking: if it's a comedy, but like, could you imagine? I mean, you know, we're way off topic now, but like, could you imagine The Office with a laugh track? I mean, part of the humor of that show is in the silence, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So uh, things have just changed. Or even even a fast-paced show like Thirty Rock, mm-hmm. a laugh track would break break that up. Yeah. yeah. 
So, yeah. A laugh track, unless it's one of those live shows like the uh, the Night Court revival, the thing I find most jarring about it is the, is the laugh track. Mm. Because it's like, it's so clearly manipulated. It's don't tell me what to do. Yeah, I'll laugh when <laughs> laugh I want to. Laugh on my and own yet, terms. And yet, because that show is clearly done theater style right in front of an audience, if it didn't have anything... It would be deadly because they're holding for laughs, yeah. right? So it's uh, it's a weird thing. Well, I'm glad we got to have a really in-depth conversation <laughs> about laugh tracks here at the end of this episode. <laughs> I could talk all day about it. Um, Joellen's book, In It Together, is out on Friday as it you're is. listening to this. True. You can get it uh, Pretty anywhere. much anywhere. It's um, being carried a lot more places than my original book was, which is very exciting. Um yeah, I recommend that people go to their indie stores, or if you want to shop online, bookshop.org is great because they support independent bookstores, uh, which are dying. So please give them your money. And if you're in the Philadelphia area, you can swing by the Doylestown Bookshop. They still have some signed they do. copies. They have signed copies, yeah. Nice. If you really want a signed copy, you can also come to my website, redheadbedhead.com slash books. And that is where I have signed copies of both my books. Amazing. Mm-hmm. John, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a great conversation. Wish you so much success with the new book. And I hope you'll come back and talk with us when there's another one. Great. Thank you so much. All right, Natty, we've got one more career fair to get through as we're recording this. The design fair is tomorrow. Last in person. And then one more. And then the virtual design fair will be next week. And then... That's it. The semester's over <laughs> as far as career fairs go. There's more. There's more. There's the Ivy Plus Just in Time Fair. There's the... I was thinking of just ones that we had to work. Yeah. But yes, there is the Ivy, uh, there's the Ivy Plus Just in Time Fair that's open to everybody. And then there is the Graduate Career Consortium Fair for graduate students um, that is also virtual this year. So there are still job fair opportunities uh, all the way through April. But as far as uh, career services, hosted in-person fairs, by the time you hear this, they will be in the rear view mirror. Um, but there are still plenty of things happening this semester. Natty and I have some programming this week that we're going to be doing. Yeah. And, of course, we'll be recording the podcast all the way up until finals. So there's still a lot to come. And we'll see you next time on CS Radio. This podcast is presented by the University of Pennsylvania Career Services, a division of University Life. It was created by Milan Kirshner and J. Michael DeAngelis. It was produced and hosted by J. Michael DeAngelis and Natty Leach and mixed and edited by Sam Pasco. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you're listening. See you next time on CS Radio.